What is the cultural commons? Is there a tradition that links Burke with Nietzsche? What about Burke and Gandhi? What was Gandhi's critique of modernity? And what was Burke's too of capital? Is there an Indian secularism? In this conversation, it's my honour to speak with Professor Akhil Belgrami about his past and present work in philosophy, political economy. Hi everyone, welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast. It's my great honour today to be speaking with Professor Akhil Belgrami. He's the Sydney Morgan Besser Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University and the author of several books, including Secularism, Identity and Enchantment. Today we're going to range across a various number of themes from Gandhi to secularism to India and what's occurring there now with BJP and Hindutva. And then hopefully we'll also explore some of his new thinking around the commons and cultural commons. But thank you so much, Professor, for being here and speaking with me today. Nice to be here. It's, um, I was reading an interview the other day with, that you held with Uday Mehta, and in that interview he asked you at the start of it, how do you conceptualise the methodology that brings you to philosophy? Do you see yourself in that tradition of humanistic thinkers, not so much interested in the boundaries between disciplines, but rather the spaces in between them? Would that be an accurate description to start off with your work? Uh, you, you know... Uh, Mr. Jacobs, I don't really think very much about what, what it is that I do. I'm not very self-conscious about uh, uh, my writing or, or the, the topics and themes of my thinking. I, I, you know, it's something just, just grabs my interest and I, and I start pursuing it and I try and learn whatever I need to learn to figure it out. Uh, and so I don't know to what extent I, I'm even a philosopher anymore. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, sometimes I, I, I write mostly about political economy, if, if that's required by my topic. Sometimes I uh, uh, try and think about cultural anthropology, if that's required by my topic, as in the uh, uh, writings on the commons. And, but I mean, there's no mistaking the, the idioms and style of argument in what I write. It's definitely that of a philosopher. Mm. Um, so, uh, so there's a kind of uh, disregard for, for, you know, standard uh, uh, professional methods and protocols. I, I just, I think the academic, ever since, ever since subjects became disciplines and then disciplines became professions, mm. I'm just using the, the phrases. Uh, I, when I was first started studying, I, what I was doing was called a subject. I, I, I then landed in, in uh, universities in abroad and uh, uh, when I left India and uh, and I suddenly found that I was supposed to be doing a discipline. I don't know what, what made for that change. It, it's a very complicated question, what makes for that change. But in the last three decades or so, it's now not even a discipline. It's called the philosophy profession. Uh, and I never signed up to be in a profession. Uh, and, uh, and so I think... Uh, these changes actually 
create a guild mentality. They're, they're really determined by the need for placing people in, in employment and so on and so forth. And so all sorts of silos get created and, and all sorts of protocols for uh, what is the subject and what from the outside contaminates it, etc. Et you know, I, I have yeah. I have people in my department saying we can't hire so-and-so because it, it would basically, the argument is it will contaminate our subject. Uh, you know, uh, whereas there was a time when somebody like Keynes was a philosopher, mm. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, but Keynes couldn't get hired in a philosophy department now. And so I don't know what I do. What matters to you in the work then, I, I guess, is the interesting question. If, you know, we are noticing this trend where things are becoming highly professionalized, what are we moving away from and what are we losing in that process? I, you know, I, 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 I won't tell you who this is. It's a very uh, well-known philosopher, but there was uh, uh, somebody, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I think to, to, to keep in mind is that you have to know a whole lot of things other than philosophy to do philosophy. Yes, you just have to. Uh, I don't think you can do political philosophy without knowing an enormous amount about political economy, uh, about cultural anthropology, mm. uh, and and that's not how most of political philosophy is done. I admire Rawls greatly, but <clears throat> the Rawls minutia that you find in political philosophy, for instance, <clears throat> just leaves me cold. <clears throat> and I think uh, there's this completely false distinction between ideal theory and, mm. and you know, other kinds of, uh, of uh, intellectual work and about politics. And uh, so, so it's what, what you're calling the professionalization really, I think is very much driven by how shall we preserve the jobs for ourselves, uh, you know, for our department? Uh, and, and I think uh, that's, that's one of the main things that, uh, that motivates this kind of narrowness, this guild mentality. Yes. Uh, you know, it's really like a guild. You're, you're not doing analytic philosophy if you write in this way or about all these things, etc. Yes. And I, I want to get to Gandhi in a moment, but it's it's really interesting. I wrote my thesis, my honest thesis, partly on ideal and non-ideal theory and tried to situate Burke in the context of that debate. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in what you think about that debate. You mentioned that there's this false distinction at work in it. If you could please unpack that, I'd be really interested to hear more about that. Say that again. I didn't hear you. So, so the, the, the false... Yeah, the false distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory, uh -huh. as you see it. I'd be very interested to hear more about what you think about that. Right. Um, well, I think that there's... See, there's one kind of distinction that people make, uh, which I think is, is wrong. Well, so I think one of the, the important things that people like Burke, but, but Foucault and others have pointed out is that so much is driven uh, by 
the fact that one's theories have to be tested mm. in in a in a field in which who has power uh, and how it's exercised uh, determines what the very nature of the concepts are. Right? And, and I think that is completely missing in, uh, in so-called ideal theory. Yes. So Rawls, whom I think is, there's a sort of nobility in Rawls's uh, projects, Mm. Uh, and he's a remarkable, tremendous philosopher, uh, but there's no, there's no recognition of this fact mm. that I just pointed to. No. Mm. Uh, and, um, and I think there's a, there are people who are writing now and saying, talking about realism and so on. You know, there's a kind of uh, uh, turn to realism that's fine. I mean, I, the, uh, it's 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 okay to 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 wield that familiar uh, word, really a yes. cliche. In I think that's it's it's fine. Something like that is what is um, the basis for one's uh, being skeptical of, of ideal theory. But you see, it shouldn't go in the direction. For instance, I feel that Amartya Sen has taken it, which is to say that you shouldn't ask the question. Uh, what is justice? Justice. Yeah. You should ask what is more just than the present or something like that. But I don't think that can be quite right because if you recognize that ideal theory is idle, mm. not just ideal, but idle, um, what you recognize is, and if you understand that the, the ways in which power and power as it affects discourse, that is the discursive field uh, and, and not just the political field, but the political field as partly constituted by the discursive field, mm. um, then, then I think you, you'll find that very often asking the question, what is more just than now? Will is asking what is the next step forward, yes. right? Rather than what is the ideal. Yes. But if you very often taking a step forward is, as the cliche goes, taking many steps backwards, mm. right? One step forward, three steps back, or whatever, and mm. and the and and that is very often the case. Right? Uh, so so I don't think Sen's way of developing. This critique is right because if if what I'm saying is right about power, the discursive field, etc., uh, one step forward is often three steps back, given the nature of of the. Uh, yes. So we've got to figure out what is meant by the so-called realism, and I don't think we've paid enough methodological attention to those issues. I see. I see. I guess. Yeah. Let's perhaps start with the commons then, Professor, because I, I thought we were going to start with Gandhi, but you talked just then about how things occur against a backdrop. So when you're speaking about things like laws and institutions, it seems to me that they are built upon and set against a backdrop of discursive practices that some would call manners that we that kind of require a certain precondition of trust to function. And this is something that seems to be coming out in your 
most recent work, perhaps you can start with what the commons is for our listeners and then walk us to your concept of the cultural commons in that vein. Yeah. Um, well, you see, one way to think about it is, is something really that I first, I mean, uh, you know, one, one thing you to, to think about it is, is if you read Nietzsche mm. and read the birth of tragedy in particular, you you'll find there an argument. It's it's won't be made in these ways because this is an analytic philosopher's way of putting it. Um, but I think his idea is that something in a trajectory, which of course he traces all the way back to, to uh, Plato, Socrates, and, and to, to a turn in Attic tragedy uh, with Euripides, mm. which is that the representational emerged as a self-standing uh, 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 cognitive field, and it denied, when I say self-standing, it, according to Nietzsche, it denied the fact that representation would not even so much as be possible if there wasn't a whole Dionysian background, mm. which was non-discursive, mm. right? Uh, and so he brings in the non-representational arts like music, dance, etc., as being primary, mm. right? And, uh, and even in the theater, uh, prior to Euripides, there was this total, uh, what he calls Dionysian, and there's a whole uh, set of metaphors. In a typical flamboyant, uh, Nietzsche appealed to metaphors, to, uh, to the Bacchae and, and so on. And, and, and there's, so there's, the chorus is mediating, it's all done as part of affect, emotion, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, talking about suffering as experience, not as, as something reflected upon, and so on. And all that makes possible the representational uh, individual actors, you know, advancing the plot, advancing the narrative, making their speeches, and so on and so forth. Yes. Uh, and the chorus is mediating this thing, you know. Uh, so the chorus has the story. In fact, uh, at that time, uh, Nietzsche was uh, good pals with Wagner and admired him. And the whole point of Bayreuth and its construction was precisely to have this total fusion of experience between audience and, and which the chorus was supposed to, to mediate uh, so that the representation just doesn't seem self-standing. You know, it's got this whole background of non-discursive, experiential, yes. uh, So I think Birth of Tragedy was uh, was the first to articulate this in a in a very clear way, and then a whole range of other philosophers, and and I think Wittgenstein's notion of a form of life yes. that underlies rules, protocols of of uh, norms in, in society, eventually linguistic uh, meaning, uh, is done by a background of you know just culture. Mm. Of cultural understanding, which is uh, uh, 
which is not rule constituted, not uh, uh, law-like, not norm-like, etc., but just cultural practices. Uh, I think Wittgenstein is really uh, making a sophisticated, uh, he's taking it out of the aesthetic field, generalized it uh, philosophically. And, and of course, Heidegger uh, is much more explicitly tied to, to uh, the Nietzschean background that I mentioned. So there are all these, there's this whole tradition, which I think comes from Nietzsche. And uh, Wittgenstein, of course, doesn't ever mention Nietzsche. There's no uh, explicit um, influence of that kind, but it's it's part of a single tradition, mm -hmm. I think. And so my idea in, in these very recent writings is to, is to argue that all these issues about um, about the tragedy of the commons, the, <clears throat> mm. um, the whole problem of the game theoretic uh, uh, issues about cooperation and free riding and so on, <clears throat> are basically, in the end, they are at bottom, uh, as I argue in, in these writings, uh, all these are manifestations of modern alienation. Yes. Yes. And uh, and so Marx for me is a very central figure in this, uh, and, and so is Gandhi, and uh, mm. and and I think and I think you know Burke falls within this tradition because yes. Burke is very much um, uh, I mean, Burke is an ambivalent figure. Uh, he's uh, um, you know he's he's got real commitments to to the law and and so on. But I think he's also got a, uh, a very deep understanding of custom and practice um, mm. and acculturation into custom and practice. So uh, he doesn't make this explicit as, as, as I have tried to do in, in this work, but, uh, but that's how I would see his stress on custom and practice and its relation to his other stress on ancient constitution, yes. law, stuff like that. So what happens, Professor, I love this concept of having a, a chorus act as the backdrop to representation. And it's, a, it's an interesting notion when one thinks of, I mean, we're talking about Burke, manners are of more importance than laws, those sorts of phrases that there is an undergirding, um, visceral, affect-infused form of experience that is discursive from which the activity, from which we come to the activity of representation. What is the value of representative thinking did you mean non-discursive? Non-discursive, sorry. Yeah, non-discursive, yes. What, what happens, what's the value of, of representative thinking against that non-discursive backdrop? Why do we do it? Uh, because <clears throat> um, because if, if this foreground of law and norm was all the ground there is, if there wasn't a background on this case, if explicit law, codes, constitutions, uh, norms and rules, uh, social norms and rules, um, was all the ground there is, I don't think, to, put, to take language, for instance, I don't think you could solve 
Wittgenstein's rule following problem. Mm. Uh, you, you'd have to take what Kripke calls the skeptical solution to it, and that's no solution to it. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so, so in the very abstract field of, of language, meaning, etc., I don't think it would solve the so-called skeptical problem of rule follows. Uh, because the skeptical solution to the skeptical problem that Kripke offers is no solution at all. Mm. Uh, so you, you would have to appeal to forms of life uh, in Wittgenstein to, to solve what would be otherwise an absolutely crippling problem for the yes. very concept of rule or law. Yes. Um, okay, now, in, in my paper, I try and apply that to the laws of a society and you know the the, the legal norms, the constitutional norms and, and codes and so on, and try to address problems that are raised for cooperation and so on. Uh, why multi-person prisoners dilemmas, the game theoretic yes. uh, uh, things. I, I try and uh, wheel in this uh, background forms of life, which I call the cultural commons. <clears throat> and the cultural commons is where we willy-nilly are unalienated. Mm. And mm. We, we couldn't even recognize conflict, alienation, and so on, unless there was a background of non-conflict, unalienatedness, and such. You know, the, the background can be very thin as societies get very badly corrupted by, by you know, bad aspects of modernity. Uh, or, uh, and uh, mostly driven by capital. Uh, and, and I think that, in a way, was partly an instinctive uh, part of Burke's dislike of, of the commercial, you know. Um, and, this is not government, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Burke is a very mixed figure in this. You know, Burke in many ways was uh, was uh, was very much behind a whole a whole range of of developments in in uh, uh, the broad developing macroeconomic field, mm. uh, which were uh, very much part of uh, uh, early capitalism, uh, and so so. Burke is a complicated figure. You, I think, mm -hmm. he has certain instincts. Yet, that on the other hand, many of his explicit claims are mm -hmm. uh, many of his uh, what he stood for uh, in politics is. It's not obvious that uh, it is. Uh, Sufficiently, uh, sufficiently recognizes the destructive uh, role of capital. He wasn't a an, an uh, political economist of that kind. He was much more instinctive thinker. Yes, yes. Um, so it would be too quick to to think Burke is a hero whose anti-commercialism amounts to mm. any systematically thought out anti. Uh, opposition to the developments of modernity 
uh, in the form of, of mm -hmm. the developments of capital. Burke was, was uh, uh, not a figure of, uh, of a uh, long lineage back of the left. He was not. Yes, uh, yes. He was, he was part, of the, part of an early, very early uh, romanticist um, uh, figure against commercialism. But, mm. but one has to be careful not to overinterpret that. Yes. And perhaps that brings us then to Gandhi, who is someone that does fit within an alternative tradition. Perhaps, Professor, we can, let's start with 1909, let's start with Inswaraj. What was Gandhi's critique of modernity? What worried him about the crossroads that he thought India was facing in the early part of the 20th century? Yeah, well, you know, my reading of Gandhi has placed him uh, as being in some affinity with early modern anxieties on the part of certain radical, uh, in England, radical Puritan sects, mm. uh, those studied by Christopher Hill. Um, Turning the world upside down, is that the book you're thinking of? Because I read Gandhi as, as claiming that India was at the cusp of, of the kinds of changes that took place in Europe in the early modern period when he was writing in Swaraj in 1909. So, uh, so it seems to me very natural to read Gandhi, say, alongside somebody like Winstanley, Mm. Who, was, who was filled with alarm about the direction uh, that very, very early and very incipient forms of capital, as, as you know, really that were uh, being generated by the enclosures movement, uh, um, which was turning uh, common land into sites of uh, what we would now call agribusiness. And uh, and I think that Gandhi's the recoil from the developments of modernity are a recoil from the developments of the influence on people's mentality mm. and in the cognitive realm, the cultural realm, uh, and the cultural realm um, of capital's influence. Mm. And, and Gandhi was not a socialist by any means. Uh, and so the comparison with Marx is limited, but, but nevertheless, I think it's quite accurate to say that he hated capitalism as much as Marx or anybody else you can think of. Mm. Mm. And he focused on its, on its ill effects on, on one's thinking and, and one's cultural being. Uh, uh, more than just simply um, one's material uh, suffering and exploitation and so on. Uh, and, you know, he was a very early thinker about these degrowth theories. He made a distinction, a well-known distinction between poverty and destitution. And, um, and he claimed that there was nothing wrong with poverty. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I just heard a talk by a uh, well-known colleague of mine uh, a few months ago, 
and he basically said industrialization saved us from uh, poverty, uh, from centuries of poverty. And, you know, that's exactly what Gandhi was, was rejected mm -hmm. because he said what industrialization brought was destitution. Mm. And there was nothing wrong with poverty, uh, you know, and this is just part of the whole degrowth movement that we now, um, and, and I think, in, you know, growth economies uh, just fail to make this distinction. Mm. And uh, it was absolutely central to Gandhi. And so he would reject all notions of development in the sense of growth economies uh, of the modern period. And, uh, and that was part of his reason for being against industrialization. Because mm. He was not against technology in a sort of fetishistic way. He was just uh, very concerned about how it, um, it created a kind of destitution that poverty, simply the term poverty doesn't describe. Yes. Uh, uh, the term poverty describes what did hold for centuries for many people. And uh, so, so he was a very early figure in, in, in this degrowth idea. He was a very early figure on, on themes of climate change, uh, mm. maybe one of the very earliest. In terms of the relationship with Marx, you've written quite a bit about how the two complement one another and, in, and in, a, in, another, in a number of ways. One of the interesting points that I've heard you make before is that some conflate Marx's observation of fact about primitive accumulation in Europe with assumptions that they think Gandhi might be making in the case of India. I was wondering if you could unpack that, uh, what you take to be a false conflation um, between the two thinkers, because right. it's very so, important, yeah. So this is something I come to by, by criticizing Amartya Sen. You know, Amartya Sen, whom I, mm. a friend whom I admire greatly, um, nevertheless did, does take the view that, uh, well, you know, there's that remark of his, that, that well-known remark of his that I cite, um, which is when there was protest against, against these special economic zones and this, this kind of eminent domain of uh, form of dispossession of peasantry for corporate projects in India. So a lot of protest against it. Mm. Arundhati Roy was one of the, the figures who protested. Uh, other people who've uh, worked very hard on, on this, Medha Patkar and others, spread protest on it, including by, by um, movements in Bengal. Mm. Um, Sen said uh, against the protests, uh, England went through its pains to create its Londons and Manchesters. India will have to do so too. So what, what, what I argue is that if as anybody knows this analogy with, uh, with Londons and Manchesters, for India right now is a historical analogy 
but it's an imperfect historical analogy because when people were dispossessed of their land in uh, London and Manchester, they moved in very, very large numbers to the part of the world where I'm domiciled now, mm -hmm. uh, to your part of the world in, in the, uh, and over the centuries to, uh, to the antipodes, um, and generally to the temperate belt. And this was diffusing capital. Mm. I, I mean, the countries that you find capitalists now diffused from Europe, what well, precisely the America, the North Americas, and, and uh, the Antipodes. And, and, uh, and this was because of this migration to other parts of the temperate belt as a result of many changes in Europe, but very particularly uh, the dispossession and impoverishment, I mean, the dispossession of what of, of people from their means of production, mostly land, you know, it's mostly peasants and artisans and so on. Mm. Uh, and, and this is what Marx called primitive accumulation, right? This kind of dispossession of what he called petty producers, primarily peasants and artisans, from their means of production, which is land. Mm. And so what I ask is a counterfactual question, which is, uh, you know, Marx had this whole theory that primitive accumulation is a, is a very bad thing in the sense that it's very coercive, it's brutal, it's... Uh, uh, it has very harsh effects on, on the dispossessed. Um, but he says it creates new forms of, of suffering uh, mm. through exploitation and uh, the generation of modern alienated societies. But it gets rid of old forms of wrong, uh, such as religious conflict, you know, what we would now call the bad forms of identities, you know, religion, caste, uh, etc. Mm. And so, so the conflicts and divisions which are based on primordial ties to, to religion, caste, etc., which were part of the pre-modern, uh, get displaced by this creation of growth economies, creation of people uh, being dispossessed of the land, but forming new uh, uh, forms of labor, such as the industrial proletariat, the creation of cities, and so on. Um, so it's, it's progressive. The, the one gets rid of all forms of, of uh, uh, wrong tied to primordial ties creates new forms of wrong tied to alienation, exploitation of, of wage labor, etc. The proletariat's suffering. Yes. So that's the picture. But but mm. what I ask is, wait a minute though. The people who were dispossessed of the land went in Europe, went off to these other places, uh, migrated to these other places and diffused capital. Uh, but what if 
but there's no place for the dispossessed of places like Bengal and Chhattisgarh and all to yes. go to. But now they're immigration laws. Mm. They, they can't just go anywhere they feel like. So all they do is go to their own cities and and uh, which are already glutted. They live in slums. Uh, the children get into mafia gangster mm. uh, culture. They're, they're just basically freezing in their own shit in, in slums. And, and, and the water's polluted. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, and so... So the analogy is a very perfect analogy. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, uh, when there was a when there was a relative parity of mobility mm. between capital and labor, right? Um, uh, when when there could be migration of labor to to other parts of the world, along with with uh, capital to other parts of the world. Uh, you could say what Sen said, mm. but now that the immigration laws and people can't migrate, the, the analogy just breaks down. So, so what I ask is, if you really wanted to make an accurate analogy, you should be asking, what would have happened in Europe if people didn't migrate? Yes. Right, if they were just sedentary, enforced sedentariness, and, and then, you have to ask Marx the question, would, would they have overcome their primordial talents? Mm. Mm. What, what reason is there to think that capital wouldn't have this extraordinarily massive pre-modern community of peasantry just stuck, mm. right, mm. where they are? Mm. Uh, why would you ever claim that there was the, any progress of the kind of overcoming primordial tasks. Why? Mm, mm. Um, and the capital would always have an outside of the pre-modern in its vicinity, right? Not in, in the, another part of the world like uh, Africa or, or uh, Asia, etc., but in its own vicinity. And then there's no reason to think that primitive accumulation would have any progressive effects into this kind of the capital would yes. always have enough, right? And so my, my my point was that Marx's notion of primitive accumulation mm. is not a theoretical notion. Yes. It has no generalizing powers. It is a local observation about Europe. Mm. Right? So there are all these people who now talk about provincializing Europe. Mm. Well, this was built into. I mean, this is a this is a substantive, serious, solid point about how the only reason why Europe was not provincialized was because of this possibility of migration. Yes, it's not something that this is the this is a very serious, not just you know, uh, uh, you can't deny the facts of a of a non-provincial Europe. Uh, but you have to ask this counterfactual question, and this is a serious way of developing the idea. Uh, and, and the point is that if this is right, then Marx, is, you cannot take interpret Marx as making any kind of theory, uh, theoretical point with the idea of prim It's just a local observation about Europe at a particular time. Right? And In so that span. Yes, in, in that, that 
just a completely local observation. You cannot make it the basis of a theory. So it's not that he intended to make it a theory that we have proved him wrong. It's that we are misinterpreting him in the first instance. Is that correct? Yeah, no, the classical reading of, yeah. of, uh, of primitive accumulation stuff is that it tells you the way in which modernity is mm. progress, mm. right? Mm. And I'm saying, no, it only happened in Europe because of a very peculiar, unique thing about Europe that at that time, migration to the temperate belts was possible. Yeah, fascinating. Yes. Right? So it's just a local observation about Europe. There's no built-in generality. There's no theoretical potential in the idea of primitive accumulation. Mm. It's a local observation about Europe at a particular time, historical moment. The idea that it can be the basis of understanding modernity's progress is wrong. So what about concept? And so what Gandhi saw was colonialism is not going to make possible what happened Colonial and post-colonial India are just, and these large agrarian societies are just not in the position yes. that Europe was in, in that period of, of moder modern, you know, the, uh, developing modernity. It's just not in that. And, and so, you know, you, you can't just say we can upturn what is given to us, etc. Uh, yes, which has huge ramifications for thinking about alienation in India, does it not? So what are the consequences of that idea for your thinking about alienation as, as Gandhi and Marx think well, about that concept? So, so here, you know, in order to, here I see Gandhi as lined up with the Marx that is focusing, you see, Althusser and hmm. other interpreters of, of Marx make this completely invidious distinction between early and and late Marx. Uh, so the late Marx was the Marx of capital, basically, um, and early Marx was Marx of the uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts and a few other texts. And uh, so the early Marx was the philosophical Marx, the sentimental <laughs> Marx. Uh, the, the Marx great analysis of capital was the scientific Marx. Mm. And, and I claim that, that this is wrong. And this is actually, the, you know, the, it's, it's obvious that it's wrong because Lukács uh, came to an interpretation of, of uh, uh, Marx, which was very much the early Marx, by only reading the late works because the early works were not available to him. So right. it's obvious that the early Marx was buried in the late Marx as, as well. But, but what Althusser, the, another point is that Althusser doesn't, doesn't pay any attention to the very late Marx, which is the Marx of the last decade of his life, where he was studying the Russian Mir, the Russian peasant government, and he was making comparisons with India and, and so on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there Marx is very clear that, that in societies like Russia, where the well, these fairly prevalent communes and so on, there is no reason to think that those societies have to go through the capitalist incubation right, the, of, of uh, modernity. One could seek a, 
a revolutionary socialist transformation without having to go through the... So, so there is a sense in which the way I, I think one ought to read Marx is to so not only just deny the distinction between early and late that was made by Althusser, but to say, if you read, the, if you put to bring in the very late Marx, then there's a real sense in which the very late Marx and the early Marx are extremely important mm. uh, 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 philosophical and positions about political economy to bring together. And really Gandhi then fits in very well because Gandhi was precisely saying, we don't have to go through Yes, uh, I see. Uh, a, a kind of incubation. That's why he was recoiling from the mimicry of Europe and and so on. Uh, yes, right. And and maybe if we can if we can look into that context a bit more from a historical perspective. So, if we take the concept of secularism, which is a different concept, but you know, one of your very interesting arguments is that Gandhi and Nehru, at least initially are averse to the concept's relevance in the Indian context, but they slowly come to see it as a potential reality as it comes to be realised later on. Perhaps we can start with the genealogy of secularism in Europe and then try to understand the arguments or reasons rather for why Gandhi and Nehru reject its relevance in India. And then we can get to what might have changed in the 80s and since then to make it a relevant concept if we're tracing genealogies. Right. Um, right so, so, I mean, Gandhi's pretty explicit on this. Mm. And uh, um, you see, the, the, my, uh, the most fundamental thing about Gandhi, and this is shared by Nehru in one work of Nehru, which the left doesn't like, uh, but, but which I think is maybe his most profound work, which is the discovery of India. Yes. Written in jail, right? Hmm? He wrote it in jail, is that correct? That's right. He's, yes. he, wrote a, <laughs> uh, uh, well, he wrote a lot of things in jail. Yeah. He wrote the, uh, uh, so, um, so and in that work, but Gandhi everywhere in all, all his writing, is make the point that India is, India's historical past, India's social past is, is characterized by a deep and unselfconscious pluralism. Mm. And so what I stress very much is the unselfconscious mm. pluralism. And, and I ask, and I say, that that his understanding of India's historical and social past in them is um, absolutely essential to why, and this is a puzzling fact, why it is that secularism as a concept never figured uh, very much at all in the you know, decades long freedom movement, which mm. they both pretty much led. And, and that's a puzzling thing. Um, and, and the reason I believe is that they were so convinced of this particular thing that India's past was 
uh, was very deeply characterized by an answer of conscious pluralism. They made it the basis of a comparison with Europe because they claimed that Gandhi uh, says Europe uh, is characterized by a destruction of its unselfconscious pluralism yes. by developments after Westphalia. I mean, he doesn't use this vocabulary of Westphalia, it talks of modernity, etc. Um, because of a certain development and the way I read it, bringing together Gandhi's allergy to, to the state and allergy to, to modern developments around nationalism. The way I read it is to say that in Europe, uh, after Westphalia, two things emerged. One was, of course, this new form of entity called the nation and an increasingly centralized state. Mm. Right. I mean, the, this, the, you know, prior to, to Westphalia, there was basically very scattered locations of power. Remember, the first nationwide tax was imposed by Cromwell, basically, mm. you know, in the, in the interregnum. So, uh, so an increasingly centralized state and nation emerged, and the nation form of the political entity emerged. And they emerged absolutely in tandem and so much in tandem that they got fused and we, it became natural for us later to describe it with a hyphen, nation-state. And at the same time, as a result of the rise of the sciences, uh, new forms of justification or legitimation of state power was needed because the older forms were based on theology, the divine rights of things, or you know, a whole range of, of uh, uh, justifications, I see. Um, yeah. which, which didn't hold up anymore. In right. fact, that's why the whole social contract tradition was, was theorized, but that's all high philosophy, you know, Locke, Hobbes and so on. But in, in the actual political field, uh, this uh, emerged because, because I think people, because the form of legitimacy that, that these new developments required for the state was to claim that, uh, was not to make any claims on theology, etc., but to make claims on what I crudely call political psychology, uh, which is to justify the state, which now was fused with the nation, by creating a feeling in the populace for the nation. But because the nation was fused with the state, that would justify the, the state with which it was fused. And this, of course, came to be called nationalism, this feeling for the nation, right? Which, which legitimated the state, which the nation was completely joined with, yes. conceptually, right? And, uh, and the way in which this was done, and this is what Gandhi was particularly stressing, was to say, was you, you created this feeling by, by finding an, an external enemy within the territory of the nation and saying the nation is ours, not theirs. Yes, right. right. The Jews, the Irish, uh, the capitalists, uh, the Protestants in, in 
Catholic countries, Catholic support. So this was a standard pattern. This is European history. This is the history of, of Europe, right? Uh, finding an external enemy within, saying the nation is ours, not theirs, thereby creating a feeling for, for the nation, legitimating the state with which it's fused. We later call this, this method of, of uh, legitimation nationalism. And, and when you did this, this was basically when it was done on the basis of religious majorities and minorities, um, I mean, majority and minority is a, is a vocabulary that came a little, I mean, you know, the way it was done was to say there's an external enemy here in our midst, right? the, the, the Catholic or whatever. And when numerical and statistical forms of discourse came into play, they began to be called majorities and minorities. When it was religion was the criterion, they were called religious majorities and nationalism became associated with religious majoritarianism, mm. right? majoritarianism generally. Mm. And, and then there were min religious minoritarian backlashes. You know, they said, what the hell is this? So there was tremendous strife. And, and as a result, people said, religion is the problem, right? They, they moved away from majoritarianism as the yes. source of the problem because there were minoritarian violent backlashes. And so they said religion itself is the problem. And to repair that problem, to solve, to repair that damage of, of these nation building exercises via this method of finding an external enemy, secularism was formulated as a doctrine. And Gandhi's point was, we've never had this problem. <laughs> But we've had an unselfconscious pluralism, which was never destroyed by these nation building exercises. So it would be slavish mimicry to, to follow secularism. You know, it's just cognitive mimicry. And why? It's mm. not, not our problem, it's their problem. Mm. Uh, maybe they needed it, it's got nothing to do with us. Yes. And so that explains why it never really surfaced in, in, in India all through the period that Gandhi lived and worked, and, and Nehru too, in that period. Right? I think it's become a very, very uh, different scenario now because, yeah. because ever since the 80s, India has been mimicking Europe in the nationalism, mm. right? Finding an external enemy within, mm. right? And I feel very strongly that this that even though there were elements of this during the freedom movement, it is wrong to think of them as the roots of what's going on. And I make a, a, a pretty clean distinction between roots and antecedents. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, I believe the roots for this were laid only in the 80s uh, for various reasons that I can talk about, but, uh, but not earlier. And the, uh, I think Gandhi's and Nehru's idea of anti-imperialist nationalism completely dominated these Hindu nationalists in all of the early period, who were relatively marginal. Uh, I mean, they were unresolved issues, but that doesn't mean that they were roots. They were just antecedents yes. to contemporary. And, and I believe now Gandhi would be the first to say that secularism is relevant because now what happened in Europe mm. damage that secularism seeks to repair 
is being replicated since the 80s. I guess so, so I think it's wrong to think that, that Gandhi would have opposed secularism in our time. How, how do you distinguish, Professor, between roots and antecedents before we come to the question of the 80s? How do you think about that, that distinction? Well, if something is a root, then there has to be an organic causal path to the flowering. Yes, wonderful, right. Nobody has shown that the Hindu Mahasabhat element in the Congress is, is there's an organic causal path from that to, to Narendra Modi today. I mean, that's, who has shown that? It's yeah. just, you know, it's, it's an absurd extrapolation. Uh, you know, you, you need evidence, you need a lot of, of tracing things and so on. So the way I would put it is, yes, yeah, so there, there were the Mahasabhite elements, there was Savarkar's Hindutva, there was, um, uh, you know, Tilak's various appeal to, to uh, you know, the cultural items of Hinduism and so on, um, in, in the anti-imperialism, but, mm -hmm. but there was, there's no sense in which a, a causal pathway from a root, that seen as a root to uh, the contemporary flowering of, of this European form of nationalism can be yes. traced. So yes. what I would say was those, those, those elements, uh, uh, Savarkar's writings on this and the Mahasabhite element in the Congress raised all sorts of questions were not resolved. Mm. Mm. But, but that means that they were antecedents. Yes. Uh, but you can't say there were forerunners. You can't say that there was a causal pathway from them. You've got to show that, and nobody has shown that. Yes. So I actually try and, and present how real roots were laid in the 80s, yes. late 70s, 80s, and so on. And, and how, do you, and how do you think that those roots were laid in the 80s up until where we are now? Because there's obviously well, I a think very they were clear... Laid, it's a very rich and complex uh, field to, to explore here, but, but here are two things which I can quickly say. I think one is, is uh, rather obvious that a certain turn took place in politics in the 1980s in India when uh, there was a report on, on uh, what are called backward castes, mm. um, called the Mandal Commission report. And it had a tremendously generative effects and, uh, effect in politics. What it basically showed was that India was deeply divided by caste. Hindu society was deeply divided by caste. It exposed it, right? Because it, uh, it made a study of, of backward castes and so on, and made recommendations. Um, and, and I think the upper caste Hindu establishment were filled with anxiety about the fact that Hinduism was being exposed as a deeply divided, divided by caste society. And so they really pulled out all the stops in the parliamentary field, in the cultural field with organizations like 
the Vishwa Hindu Parishad and so on. And the grassroots, you know, building on work done by the RSS, the Rasa. So, and uh, they pulled out all the stops to, to mimic Europe, to say, yes. no, we yeah. are not divided by caste. We are a, Hinduism is a uniform, unified social phenomenon mm. uh, as a religion. And the, the unification that they sought to achieve of Hinduism was by finding an external enemy and saying, we are united against them. Uh, and that was the Muslim. And, mm. and Hindu nationalism of this kind, finding an external enemy within, emerged as a way of really combating the caste divisions that were exposed by a, this new form of caste politics generated by Mandela. I see. It was, a, it, was a, it was a real fighting back against that development mm. in politics uh, on the part of the upper castes. Uh, and they generated Hindu nationalism in a serious way to combat caste in the 80s. That's when the roots were laid. And, and also a little earlier, I would say, what made this possible, this, this Hindu nationalism possible, is that a little earlier, when Indira Gandhi had declared the emergence, Indira Gandhi and her son Sanjay Gandhi had, had, had really uh, centralized, I mean, the Congress party was in a sense destroyed by its grassroots, it all centralized into authoritarian power and Delhi in the center. Uh, it lost much of its grassroots, which is why it's a, a basically defunct party now. But it was then that this happened uh, in the period. And you just have to admit that the Hindu right showed some moral courage, courage yeah. in opposing it, which the center left, which was really very powerful then, uh, did not. They just mm. they just completely capitulated to mm. to Indira Gandhi and Sanjay Gandhi's authoritarian mm. uh, uh, centralizing moves in Delhi, and and uh, uh, so you know yes. the the Hindu right gained real high ground, and that's when the BJP emerged. The earlier Jansang had hardly any votes, you know, but BJP emerged in the parliamentary field. All these others. Uh, uh, the cultural side with the Vishwa and the Parishad, all of this, the, the high ground they got in the late 70s was exploited in this whole, uh, yeah. in the 80s to fight back the caste. Right. That's when the roots were really laid. And, and I feel that when Gandhi, seeing all this development, would say, okay, things have changed. We are now mimicking Europe and its nationalism. So secularism would be relevant as a... As, now, there's a very complex question that emerges, which is, why isn't it that multiculturalism rather than secularism is a better way of repairing the damage? And I think that's a very interesting and complex question. And I don't know if you have the time to... to Please, I, I have all the time in the world. I would love to speak about it if you, uh, if you do. <laughs> but I think that is, yeah. I mean, I think somebody who is who is really trying to be faithful to Gandhi, once we ask all these, as it were, subjunctive or counterfactual questions, what would mm -hmm. Gandhi say now in, in our time when things have changed and are more like Europe, etc.? A good question to ask is, 
why am I saying that secularism would be seen by Gandhi as being relevant to repair the damage of the nationalism that we are mimicking, uh, the European nationalism we are mimicking now since the 80s? Why isn't multiculturalism a better repair for it than secularism? Mm. And, and I think that's a good question because in a sense, multiculturalism is, is a self-conscious version of the unselfconscious pluralism mm. Mm. that Gandhi admired in India's past. So why am I saying secularism would repair the damage of the destruction of the unselfconscious pluralism? Why doesn't multiculturalism repair the damage? And here is a, it's a, I think it's a delicate question. First of all, you've got to understand, you can't even understand the question I'm asking unless you understand how multiculturalism emerged. Yes. Um, I think it emerged in Europe. Uh, I think it emerged in the post-migratory situation. Right. After the Second World War. Um, and. That late, that late in the mid 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, it emerged in, in the, mid 20th century, second mm. half of the 20th century, <clears throat> mostly because European nations lost, there was a loss of manpower in the war. Mm. Lots of men died in, in, in the Second World War. So there was labor shortages. And as a result, they, they invited labor from their erstwhile colonies, European nations. Uh, you know, French from the Maghreb, Britain from, from South Asia, and, you know, Germany and Turkey is a, not exactly a, a colonial situation, but, you know, there were long ties, uh, uh, which go back through treaties to the Ottoman period, other labor treaties later on, and so on. Um, and so the Turks were... Uh, migrated from to, to Germany. So there were all these patterns of migration. Mm. And when that happened, the migrants suffered quite a lot of racial hostility. Uh, you know, they were treated as, began to be treated as external enemies within. Um, but they felt that secularism was not was too blunt an instrument hmm. because secularism was, was basically ushering out all religion, majority and minority, out of the field, of, of, out of the orbit of the polity. And they felt, no, but that's, that's missing out on the fact that our religion is a source of autonomy and dignity for us in the midst of the the racial suffering, the racial hostility we suffer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they felt we need another social contract. We do not need, we need much more autonomy for our religious and cultural ways of life. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want it ushered out along with the majority, right? Which is, uh, and so they felt secularism uh, doesn't pay enough attention to the needs of the minority because it's against the religions of both. 
yes. majority and minority. And, and so it emerged in the second half of the century in the particular sensitivities and sensibilities of the migrant communities. And it was formulated there, but then it caught fire in places like Canada and it's caught fire in Australia. I mean, you know, I, I visited Australia for successive years giving lectures. Mm. It was very deeply felt amongst, uh, you know, everybody that I met in universities and, and, uh, and you know, they were fighting it. Uh, there were secularist backlashes against it, just as, as against multiculturalism, just as they were in Europe and Canada. Mm. And that's multiculturalism. So it's basically saying secularism is too blunt. We need to go back self-consciously to the pluralism that used to be unselfconscious. So the laws would have to be different from, from the secularist laws, which would yes. you know, not give enough autonomy and, and self-governance to yes. the religious cultures. And, uh, and there's, yeah. the, that, that's something of a conservationist maneuver, right? Because the attractive move there is that you're actually reaching back into your existing tradition, going back to yourselves and making self-conscious what was unconscious. You're not radically modifying the nature of the thing, right? If you're thinking about it in a Burkean way, yeah. do, would, you, would you agree with that, that that is what that yes. maneuver is doing? That's right. That's exactly right. So, so, so a real question then arises, why aren't you doing it this way rather than appealing to secularism to deal with this problem from the 80s on in India. Yes. And do you right. think that's a fault of the left, that the left is not making that? Well, the, the, the left has tended to ignore this, or it's either ignore it or be hostile to it. Yes. And, and now, but now I think you've got to, you've got to now make a more subtle distinction between what was possible in the ninth, when the roots of, of this European form of nationalism first emerged in India in the 80s and 90s, and the situation right now. Mm. See, right now, I believe that the European form of nationalism that Narendra Modi stands for, the Hindu nationalism, the majoritarianism, is so powerful, not only because it has no opposition at the center, there's opposition in some of the regions, but in the parliamentary field, this opposite, but there's no parliamentary opposition at the center. The Congress party is just dead in the water. Yes. Right. So, so Narendra, the, the BJP is very powerful in, at the center no opposition, and, and it has actually sold the Hindutva ideology to a very large number of people, including the middle class, which have emerged as a result of this new liberal, neoliberal policies, hmm. uh, increasingly larger middle class. Hmm. They're completely sold on this Hindutva. Hmm. And I don't think that the Muslims demanding multicultural now has a ghost of a chance of success. Yes. yes. It, it, it just, it's just, it, it would be considered a laughable option mm. given how dominant mm. Hindutva is mm. in the parliamentary field and 
in the minds of increasingly large numbers of people. Mm. I think to demand something like we must be allowed to live by our own governance laws is a complete fantasy. And so I think it might have been possible in the 80s and 90s when, you know, yeah. um, uh, when Muslims showed some real agency, you know, they're, they're completely in a funk now. You know, they're, they're, they're scared. Yeah. There's a menace in their lives, which is just can't be denied. Yes. And so I think that that what, what in fact, those are remarkable, wonderful mobilizations uh, two winters ago, Mm. Uh, you know, the protests, fantastic protests by Muslims, women, students in the squares, in the maidans of, of these large and small towns all over India. They understood this very well. They were just saying, we've got a constitution, we've got our notion of citizenship, you can't do this to Muslims. You can't make us second class, you can't make us the external enemy within, etc. They were just basically saying, the constitution is a secularist constitution. We have the right to secularist citizenship. And, and I think they understood this very well. They were yes. a very, very smart group yes. of, yes. of activists. And yes. uh, of course, everything came to a halt with the pandemic. Yes, because that constitution codifies that secularist ideal, which has become newly relevant. So they are Burkeans, those students. <laughs> it's an inherently reformist move that's pragmatic. Is yeah. it not? Yeah. And I, I'm conscious of your time, Professor, but um, I would love to just discuss as a final point the relationship between Gandhi and Burke, if you do have the time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you wrote that paper, very influential paper, Gandhi the Philosopher. Mm -hmm. and in that you, you argue and try to understand what you mean by Gandhi's integrity. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that and then we might be able to compare that with what I see as potentially a similar character in Burke's thought, um, if, you, if you have the time. <laughs> so, so what I argue in that paper is um, that, well, it's sort of, it's a complicated argument, but, but the, the bare bones of it is that um, for Gandhi, uh, morals, he was a moralist, he was an incessant moralist. Um, for, for, for Gandhi, morals was more a matter of invoking or relying on or appealing to one's conscious than invoking and relying on general moral principles. Mm. Yeah. So he makes a distinction between the mor morality based on principles and a morality based what I call exemplary action. Mm. Um, that is one acts according to one's conscience and one's acts are intended by one to be exemplary. That's what the Satyagrahi, the, uh, um, the idea of Satyagraha and the activists of the so-called Satyagrahis. Um, and what he was against was the idea that 
moralities or morals is, is a matter of universalizing one's principles. And he made a subtle distinction between universalizing one's principles in the standard sense that Kant or philosophers like Richard Hare and all talk about. And just simply saying that I act from my conscience to set an example. And his idea was setting an example, speaking from one's conscious conscience and setting an example doesn't lead to hostile attitudes or critical attitudes towards those who fall who fail to follow one's example. Whereas if you've got a morality of principles, then those who, who fall afoul of the principles are transgressors of a principle. But it makes no sense to say somebody has transgressed a principle if all they've done is not followed my example. Right? So examples and principles are very different central categories by which to develop the idea of morals. And he felt that you, if you see somebody as a transgressor, there's, you bring in the state, you bring in the law, you bring in, there's just a whole range of the violence of the state that gets perpetrated, right? It's, and he was, as you know, he was virtually an anarchist in that sense. Um, and so, so he really had a, a different conception of morals. Now, what I argue is that this idea of an exemplary action is, can't be understood. I mean, the way I put it for a very long time now is, is I've, I've done it through the notion of this anecdote that I tell. Uh, With your father, is that the one? About my father, right. So, uh, and, and I think it is very telling in all sorts of ways. For me, it, it helped me bring out a lot in Gandhi. So you, I don't know if you, you want me to quickly relate. Please, please do, yeah. So, so but, it, but it's crucial to, to, to what I, how I think of, of the relationship between Gandhi and Berkeley. Uh, the, the, so, so I used to have to go to, have to go uh, for these walks with my father <laughs> in the early mornings. And, and we came across uh, a wallet with some money, rupees sticking out of it. And my father uh, very grandly stopped us and said, uh, uh, why should we not take this? And I said, I, I think we should take it. Um, and, and he said, why? Why should we take it? And I said, if we don't take it, somebody else will take it. So, so let's take it. And, <laughs> and he responded by saying, if we don't take it, nobody else will take it. Yeah. And, and I had no idea what he was talking about then, but when, when thinking about this later, what, I, what I've argued in that paper and uh, and in other places for a long time is, you can't read his claim, if we don't take it and others, then others won't take it as a prediction. Mm. You can't read it as a prediction. It's rather in the form of, let us see the world this way. 
Because if you see it as a prediction, then you can see a whole bunch of philosophers saying, wait a minute, so naive. What are you talking about? You know, you, you just can't see it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't made in that detached form. Right. And Gandhi was against that detached form of studying societies, predicting, you know. Uh, uh, so, so you've got to see the remark, if we don't take it, nobody else will, as a stance. Let us see the world this way. Yes. Not trying to, start to make some detached claim, because as a detached claim, it'll come off as naive optimism. Right? And and so what I really claim, and this is developed in, in papers that I wrote soon after, uh, is that if you're unalienated, the thought that somebody else will take it, my thought as a kid, is the thought of an alienated person. And it's really what happens in game theory and multi-person prisoner's dilemma when, when somebody says, um, what if I cooperated and others did not? Mm. That's, that's a, for Gandhi, that's a symptom of alienation. Mm. He says, in my ashram, nobody says, what if I did my bit of sweeping the floor, etc., and others didn't? Mm. He says, nobody asks that question. Mm. It doesn't mm. occur to anybody to ask that question. What Gandhi was basically saying is, we are unalienated here. This is the ideal, right? That thought should not occur to you. So for me, game theory is just a higher order symptom of alienation. Yes, I see. Uh, you know, and, and I think Gandhi would say exactly that about the whole tragedy of the commons, it's multi-question prisoners today and so on. And, and so what I basically argue is that people like, philosophers, for there's a tradition of philosophy that I think Burke is part of, Gandhi is part of, Wittgenstein is part of. This whole Cummins idea that I'm talking about. There's this tradition of philosophy which stresses alienation. And alienation is a very peculiar ideal, I say. And that's why Gandhi was really against codes, constitutions, and so on. Or he was indifferent to them. I won't say he was against them. He's just indifferent to rights, codes, laws. Because you can't insert alienation into a constitution, uh, unalienatedness. You can't insert it. You can't say, be unalienated in a, in a code. What, what mm. does it make sense? You can have liberty. You can have equality, right? You can even say that there yeah. should be solidarity and fraternity, right? But you don't say be on it. I mean, you know, it just, yes. you, it's not insertable into any code. Yes. Right? yes. It's really a background, non-discursive thing. And, yes. you, uh, and so, so you, you just take the stance. Mm. Mm. And it's one of those ideals which when it's working, you don't even need to say it. It's only when some kid says, <laughs> why don't we take it, that you need to say my, what my father said needed saying. Yes, right. yes. Um, so, uh, so that's really what I think. And, and I think Burke is part of this tradition. This is what he means by habit, custom, practice, acculturation, and so on. Right? It's, you know, it's, it's not, there's, there's a whole range of ideals, which when they're working, are just part of, of habit. Yes, yes. And it so, really goes back to Aristotle in a way, but... Yes. Know, and in those instances when 
those habits, customs and traditions are threatened, be it by commercial power or whatever. I think what Burke is saying, you know, is that that phrase, the true principles of politics are those of morality enlarged. I think a phrase like that is Burke saying, let us see the world this way, for by acting in this way, we continue to preserve what is best in us. And we continue to preserve the possibility of these non-discursive practices. We, we preserve the chorus, if you like, from which we come. And, this, and early Marx is very much part of this tradition, because remember, he says being unalienated is part of our species being. Yes. It is most, most representative of us, our yes. human. Yes. You know, um, and, uh, and we depart from it. Yes. Uh, when we are induced into capital and so on. Yes. Um, so, so I think that, that there's this tradition. It really goes back to Aristotle, Mm. Uh, but you find it in 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 Burke. You find it in. Uh, I actually think you find it in the Gnostics. But okay, yeah, it's a long story. <laughs> but Professor, thank you so much. We've gone very much over time, but it was a wonderful conversation, and I'm so glad and grateful for your time to be able to arrange with you in this way. It's a, a real honor. So thank you, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Sure, I enjoyed. Thank it. you, Chief. Yeah.